Amen. Amen. Well, how's everybody doing today? I hear the, the folks back in the torture room, they're not doing so well. We are going to be, as you may have guessed from that song, in Psalm 84. And I want you to go ahead and turn there. I want to share with you a song that was a song written by the sons of Korah. And I'm going to explain who these, who these individuals were uh, who had written music for a particular purpose in, in, in worship. And how that applies to us today. One of the things I say over and over and over is that every Old Testament story has a New Testament application. So when you're looking at the Old Testament, you ask yourself, what does this speak to us about under the new covenant that we're in? And so when we just sang that song, Better Is One Day, I know that song's probably 20 years old. To me, it's like a new worship song, but I know it's probably 20 years old. Um, I promise you after today, after you study this passage of Scripture, you're never going to look at that passage again. So let's look together at Psalm 84, beginning in verse 1. For the director of music, according to Getith, which was a musical style, of the sons of Korah, a psalm. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and a swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Selah. That means to pause and consider. It was a musical term that oftentimes when, when they would be singing a song, they would hit a gong and let that, the gong resonate just as you would re let it resonate in your heart that what, what has just been said. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains cover it with pools. There they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Selah. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the one who trusts in you. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, your people just approach you, God, and we ask that you would make this real to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would just penetrate, Lord, that you would show us, Father God, what it is specifically and individually that we need to take and glean from your word today. Father God, we want to honor and glorify you, but more than that, we want to see your purposes accomplished in our lives and in this world, Lord. And I thank you, Father, for your word that tells us how to do that. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to say something at the beginning here that you probably instinctively recognize as, as factual but maybe isn't said enough. And that is that your participation in the joy of Christ is inherently linked to your participation in the mission of Christ. Let me say that again. Your participation in the joy of Christ is inherently linked to your participation in the mission of Christ. See, if I said today, uh, you know, I'm going to give you a million dollars, I don't have it, so don't ask for it. But if I said I was going to, and you could spend it any way, you could do anything you want for the next day, a lot of us would not pick going to church. I'm just being real. 
And yet the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And we can sing that. We're like, you know what, in principle, yeah, in theory it's true. But, but in kind of a practical application, I, I don't feel like going to church is always the best day of, of my week. Now, for some of you, it is. And some of you have held on to that passion and that joy. But a lot of folk I talk to, if we're getting real... They just don't. And the psalmist is not, in effect, saying better is one of those really good church days than a thousand normal ones. What he's hungering for and what he's talking about is something far beyond that, far deeper than that. Now, all of us want powerful moments with God, and the psalm speaks to that. But the psalmist goes further. He says that authentic worship actually affects the physical world around us. Look at verse 6. As they pass through the valley of Baca... They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. Now, the valley of Baca was a dry and arid place where very little would grow. If you think about the, the southeast desert or southwestern desert where, where you just see very little plant life. That's the valley of Baca. And the person that the psalmist is talking about, he says, brings as, as in the physical, somebody might bring spring rains and pools to this dry, arid place. So in the, in the supernatural or in the spiritual, that the person that you're, the psalmist is speaking of has that kind of effect on the, the world around them. But we also need to make sure we define our terms properly because if we begin to talk about like blessed are those who dwell in your house and think, well, that means if you go to church a lot, you get a, a, a Maserati or a mansion or a date with a supermodel, we're not understanding what blessings are. Carnality will always lead to false definitions. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now he's not saying the lost person. He says the natural man. And he makes this kind of contrast in Galatians where he talks about the, the man who, who lives after the flesh and the man who lives after the Spirit. And he's saying if you walk after the flesh, if you, if you allow the flesh to kind of run the show of your life, then the things of the Spirit will become foolish to you and they will become ununderstandable, imperceptible to you. Now, a couple of things I noticed very quickly about this psalm as I was preparing this message. First, that the, the psalmist recognizes that God is the one best equipped to determine what a good thing is. So when he talks about no good thing does he withhold from him whose walk is blameless, the psalmist is not telling God what a good thing would be. But secondly, I saw this in verse 10 where he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. And it made me wonder, what is the necessity of a doorkeeper in God's house? Why does the psalmist focus our attention on this position in the midst of such a passionate plea? To answer that, you have to have a basic working understanding of the context of the psalm. Now, it says that it was written by the sons of Korah. These were Levitical descendants of Korah appointed by King David for the temple liturgy and worship. These guys wrote some of the songs we still sing, like As the Deer... Panneth for the water. If you go through the Psalms, you'll see that these guys wrote some of the songs. We just sang one of the songs they wrote, what, 3,500 years ago. And so that is the first thing that this, this uh, introduction tells us the, about the psalm. It says that it's for the director of music. Here's the musical style. But it's of the sons of Korah. They would have used temple imagery as they wrote, as in verse 4, Blessed are those who dwell in your house 
they are ever praising you. Now, obviously, we get a picture of the priests ministering, but it goes beyond that. They are writing worship by appointment of the king for use by the king, but also influenced by King David, the master psalmist. And they choose their imagery based on that, meaning they chose the position of a doorkeeper, not a, a cupbearer, not a cook. They chose the position of a doorkeeper to best contrast carnal, flesh-satisfying living. A doorkeeper, if you think about a door in the back of, of, of the church, right? If you have a doorkeeper, they are the farthest person away from the action, so to speak, and yet still in the room. And what did Jesus tell us about when you get invited to a wedding feast, take what? The lowliest position. And so here the psalmists are saying, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Now to the reader at that time, they would have understand the ones who were the wicked, and the psalmists write about this, Job speaks about this, the prophets write about this. God, why do you bless? Why is it that the wicked seem to have so much? Why do they prosper? Why do they seem their children are well fed? They're, they're, they're sort of like they're fat, dumb, and happy. They, got, they just, why are you blessing them? Even the prophet asked, Lord, I get it. We're sinful and your judgment and your wrath is going to come against us. But why would you use a nation that is more sinful than us to judge us? Babylon is more sinful than Israel and yet you're using them to judge us. So that was the question they pondered. And yet here these psalmists, they use that imagery and say, you know what? They may have it all. They may have every blessing of this world. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of of my God. In other words, in simple plain English, I would rather hold the door for others to come into the presence of God than satisfy my own earthly desires. Can you actually say that though? Can I actually say I would rather hold because so many of times we come to the church and we say, God, I just I just need to get something. Can you actually say, and I've had people say, you know what, I'm leaving that church, I just don't get anything. Now I get it if if nothing is being fed to you, I understand that. I'm not I'm not criticizing that. But the mindset itself is obviously self-focused. Now, if I'm very, very hungry or even hangry, obviously, I'm focused on I got to get this need met. I get that. Not diminishing that truth. But if we constantly come into the presence of the Lord saying, God, I need to get, it's about me, right? I want to get something out of this. I need to get, can we get to the place where we say, God, even if I don't learn another truth, even if I don't receive another blessing, think how blessed we all are, Right? We're all in this place. We're warm. We have food in our stomach. We have people around us that love us. Man, can we get to the place where we say, God, if you don't bless me at all today, just use me to encourage others. Use me to open the door to others. See, if I went to a store, you go to like a really fancy store, fancy hotel. Do you know they have somebody at the door, their only job is just to open the door for customers. But what would happen if you got in and they said, you know what, you just didn't buy enough. And they held the door shut when you wanted to leave. You'd be like, man, this person don't care about me. This person acts like they're here to serve me, but they're really just only interested in themselves. And that sound like what the world says about the church? They don't really care about me. They just care about them. They just want to grow their church. They just want money. They just want what's in my wallet. And the world has gotten that impression. Look, when people say, hey, why does the, why does the world hate the church so much? I say, well, I'll tell you one thing, it's not. It's not because we're preaching such a blunt, bold message that they're afraid of us. This, the 21st century church is not preaching anywhere near the bluntest, boldest message that the church has ever preached. 
I was talking this earlier about the, the, the church in the book of Acts. And the Bible actually says that the people were afraid to join the church. It said everybody held them in honor, but they were afraid to join them. Now, if you look in the book of Acts, you see the story of, of Ananias and Sapphira. And they lie to the Lord, and they're struck down at the altar, right? Now, imagine you're, you're coming in, like, to the 11 o'clock service, right? And I'm just dragging a body out, right? <laughs> Morning. What's going on? <laughs> they lie to the Lord. God struck them down in the 9 a.m. service. Come on in. Greetings, right? Welcome. I'm out. I'm out, right? The Bible says that the people were afraid to join them. But it says, nevertheless, the Lord added daily to the church, such as those who would be saved. And what that tells me is, and, and this is something that shocks people's ears when I tell them this, but nowhere in Scripture does the Bible say the church's job is to save people. We're to preach, we're to witness, we're to live it out, we're to exemplify. But the only one who saves, and Jesus made this explicitly clear, no one comes to me unless he's drawn by the Father. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but only spirit can give birth to spirit. That's God's domain. Radical transformation, new life, new birth. That is because the Holy Spirit draws us to Him. But the church's job is what? Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. God is assuming and He's making it clear, I'll do my job. You never have to beg God to do His job. He will always be God. He will always draw souls. Right now, all across this area, souls are being drawn to the Lord. And what God is looking for is a church that he can draw them to and connect them with so that we will make disciples. And so this psalm isn't necessarily just an Old Testament call to hunger. It's a rallying cry for ministry in the church. Jesus said this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now when I got called to pastor here, one of the first things they did was they gave me a bunch of keys. I said, what am I going to do with all these keys, man? Like I got, and, and this morning somebody came up and said, do you have a key to this room? And I'm like, I'm assuming I do, but I don't know if I do. And then I'm trying these different keys, and they're like, that's not it. And somebody came by and said, it's the same key as this other room. I'm like, I don't know. I, I've got a bunch of keys that I don't know what to do with, right? I know which one opens the door. I know how to turn off the alarm. I know how to get in my office. But I got a bunch of keys. I'm still learning what they're for. Hello. We've been given the key to the kingdom of God, but a lot of us don't know how to open the door. We don't know how to let people in. It has always been the call of the people of God to be doorkeepers to the world. We see it in Psalm 84 under the Old Covenant. We see it in Matthew 16 for the church. And it was true in Jesus' day to those who had rejected him. He says in Luke eleven fifty two, Woe to you experts in the law because you have taken away the what? The key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you have hindered those who are entering. They have the key. God gave them the key through the word of God. But not only do they not use it to open the door, they're serving. They're not gatekeepers. They're bouncers. They're keeping people out. So let me give you the first principle of key-holding worship. First of all, doorkeepers aren't just there to regulate the flow of traffic. They're there to facilitate it. They're not just there to regulate the flow of traffic. They're there to facilitate it. I believe many churches are wearing themselves out with prayer, fasting, and worship, seeking after the glory of God, and they're not seeing it because their motives and desires aren't right. What did James say? You have not because you ask not, and when you do ask, you ask with what? Wrong motives. You ask with wrong motives. And I've seen this to be true over and People come down, they want a specific gift, but they want it for themselves. Jesus said, my spirit will come upon you, and you will what? Be my witnesses. If you're asking God of something, you have to want not just the hand of God, but the heart of God, I saw a pastor actually put up, he goes, so many of us are asking for the hand of God and giving him the finger. 
It's true. You cannot ask for the heart of God and say, God, I want your glory. I want all this. But, but Lord, don't use me for your mission. Don't use me for your purposes. Don't use me for your glory. We can't do that. Doorkeepers have to, uh, have to be facilitators to worship. And like I, 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 I mentioned my friend Bruno Spada uh, a few weeks ago, pastor in Mystic, Connecticut. And he came to a, a service we were having. And people were just at the altar and, and you could just see worship going on. And there was just this authentic spirit of the move of God and, and people yielding to him. And he, and he turns to me and he says, Dave, you must be fasting a lot. And I had to admit, I mean, in, at least to myself, not really. I, I probably need to, but that's not why. See, we can fast and we can pray all we want. But if our hearts aren't right before God, if we don't want what he wants, if we're asking for something but saying, but Lord, I don't want to do what you want me to do, we're not going to get what he has for us. We're not going to walk in those blessings. Look, look at verse 11. No good thing does he withhold from the, what? those whose walk is blameless. Blameless, it means to be right before him. We want to fill churches. We want to experience blessings. But what would you say, like I said, about a doorkeeper who only wanted to facilitate, tra to facilitate traffic in one direction? Or one who comes up and says, hey, what are you going to buy here? How much will you spend? Are you going to make it worth me opening the door for you? Wow. Imagine going to a hotel. Imagine going to a nice place and having a doorkeeper say, are you going to make it worth it for me to do what my job you probably never go back to that store again because you'd think, this guy just wants my money so he can keep his job, but he certainly doesn't have the heart of a servant. And like I said, that's what too many people are saying about the church. The focus of the doorkeeper is to enable the flow of traffic in two directions. Let me explain what that means. If you go, look at the, the end of the book of Nehemiah, now Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. Seventy years that Daniel prophesied the people would be away from Jerusalem. At the end of that time, Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the walls. And he gets them built, and at the end of the story, you have these merchants that are showing up on the Sabbath to sell their goods. And Nehemiah warns them, and finally he says, if you come back again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And it doesn't mean pray for you. I'm going to lay hands on you if you come back here again. Now why? They had gotten accustomed to having access to Jerusalem at any time and to breaking the law of God. And the walls go up and the gates go up, and certainly they want to let people in. They were actually paying people, if you'll live here, we're going to give you these benefits to live here in Jerusalem. We want people in, but we also have a time where we need to focus on the Lord and we're going to shut those gates and the merchants can't get in. A gatekeeper has to facilitate traffic going in, but a gatekeeper also has to recognize what should not be let in. They need to regulate traffic also. And what that means is, if you get to know me, you'll understand why I say this. Many times at the end of a service, we'll have a time of response to the word. And I, I just believe that's biblical. When you look at the Old Testament pattern, the people of God would present their offering, but they would wait for God to respond. And so I assume as a pastor, once we worship and once the word has gone forth, that the Lord is going to speak to people. So I like to leave, it's a, it, it, I don't care if it's just five minutes, I just want to leave a few minutes because if God speaks to your heart and you need to come down to the altar and you need to bow and say, I just lay this at your altar, Lord, I want to give you that opportunity. Guess who doesn't want you doing that? The enemy. 
The enemy does not want you responding to the word of God. The Bible talks about being hearers of the word, but not being doers of the word. Not making any commitment, not having any follow through. I hear the word, I receive it, I like what I hear, but I go out and I live my life the exact same way. A gatekeeper regulates not only who comes in, but what doesn't come in. And so when we worship at that time, and the praise team comes back up here, and hopefully the guitar is a little better in tune then, because, but, but the praise team comes back up. That wasn't his fault. That was my fault. I'm just, I'm letting, I brought him a guitar, and it wasn't in tune. But the praise team comes back up, and they begin to minister. The enemy at that point wants to shut down whatever the Holy Spirit is saying. The enemy wants you thinking about coffee or lunch or the game or anything else or your agenda or your calendar, anything else but what God is saying to your heart at that moment. But we have the capacity to not only open the doors of heaven but to bind the enemy. If we facilitate and we create an atmosphere of worship, let me tell you what, that is toxic to the enemy. He hates real worship. He hates the atmosphere of worship. He doesn't want to go. Now, he'll come on in when there's no real worship. He'll come in if we're just hanging out. But man, when we decide and we purpose to really go after God and invite the presence of the Lord, the enemy flees. He wants nothing to do with that. So we need to understand that part of our role is helping people and creating an atmosphere for them to be free of what would bind them. See, I've been around charismatic Pentecostal churches 30 years or so. I've seen all kinds of craziness, foolishness, spell Coca-Cola 10 times fast and you're speaking in tongues or something like that. C-O-C-A-L-A-C-O, right? Spell Hyundai. H-Y-U-N-D-A-I. Just nutsies. I, had a, I have a friend, he's pastoring a mega, mega church, and he named his pet rabbit Ikimo Shandai because he heard so many preachers coming down the aisle saying that. This, this kind of stuff is what diverts us and distracts us from what God really wants to do. I'm not diminishing any spiritual gift when using authentically, but what God is after is transformation. God wants to transform your marriage. He wants to transform your heart. He wants you radical and passionate for Jesus Christ. He wants you burning with fire when you walk in. You're like, give me a sinner. Let, just, let me find somebody, right? You just want to be a witness. You want to be somebody that just talks about Jesus. And remember when you first got saved and you were like that? And somebody could be talking about pepperoni pizza and you'd figure out a way to turn the conversation around to Jesus. And you didn't know how you did it, but it would always end up. And you lost some friends that way. And some people pushed you away because of that. But you couldn't help it. And that's what the disciples say in Luke. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he walked with us and talked with us on the road? When you get into the presence of Jesus and you truly open the door for the presence of the Lord to come in, he'll transform kids. He'll transform marriages. He'll, tra he'll break addictions. That's what God does. That's who he is. And if we, like the psalmist, direct our desires for God's presence to turn us into gatekeepers... We don't have to worry about church growth. For everybody who walked away, for everybody who was bugged, for everybody who was offended. Man, I remember once I was, I was preaching and, and just, the presence of the Lord was just so thick. It was just really thick. It wasn't anything weird or anything. It was just heavy. And people were just under the anointing of the presence of the Lord. And I saw this lady get up and walk out. She'd come with another woman. This is in Massachusetts. And I went up to a, the, this woman at the end, and I said, uh, this woman who walked out, uh, uh, something offend her? I hadn't seen her before. She, she offended by the message? She said, no. 
No, she's into Wicca and witchcraft. And that scared the tar out of her. <laughs> when the presence of the Lord came, it, it, caused, it just caused her to run. There was a famous preacher. His name, is F, his name was F.J. Lee. And if you've ever heard of Lee University, some of y'all watch like the acapella shows or whatever. They've been on there two or three times. F.J. Lee was known as a good man. He was a good church-going, reputable citizen. And he decided, I'm going to check out this, um, this revival in town, this tent revival. They didn't have multiplex movie theaters and everything else. So I'm going to go down to this revival. And the presence of the Lord hit so hard, he ran into the woods. And people had to drag him, to literally physically drag him to the altar. He gave his life to the Lord. Remember, he'd always been a churchgoer. He gave his life to the Lord and he became a preacher. And the anointing was on him so powerfully, it was said... That when he walked in the room, people just got silent. Even preachers of the gospel, the anointing was upon him so powerfully. Finney was like that when he would preach the revivals in upstate New York and the Great Awakening in that time period, Jonathan Edwards. It was said that he could just walk into a room and change the atmosphere. And that's what Psalm 84 says. When they pass through the valley of Baca, a dry place, a place where it's unspiritual and there is no move of God, they turn it into a place of springs. The living water begins to flow. And that's what God is calling us to be. God is not calling us to be spectators. God is not calling, I'll probably come to the turkey bowl, but I'll probably watch. Um, I'll probably catch all those passes that go 20 yards over everybody's head, whoever's throwing those balls, right? I'll just, I'll, I'll just feel those. But God doesn't call us in the spiritual to be spectators. He calls us to be on the field. He calls us to play the game. He calls us to be the ones that he says, I'm putting you in. And in order to do that, we have to be transformational people. We have to be people that have not only had God work in our lives, but also people that can go out and transform the world around us. I remember uh, uh, I was at a meeting of some, um, it was for the town for something, uh, something about the church. And uh, I was backing out my car, and I had my, my window down. And somebody on the other side started backing out, and they weren't paying attention. Then they almost hit me. And one of the guys on the council said, Jesus Christ, right? And then he saw me. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Pastor. I'm like, you don't have to apologize. Just don't, you know, don't get upset if I start praising. <laughs> you, you can say his name all you want, but we about to have church if you keep it up. The point is, he would, ne he would never have thought about the words coming out of his mouth. Until he was around somebody who loved Jesus Christ and he knew he loved Jesus Christ. And so we can bring a transformation. Now, the world may not like that. They, Jesus said, the ones who rejected me, they'll reject you. But the ones who receive me, they'll receive you. And so we've got to be willing to take that risk. A doorkeeper understands that all that's necessary to partake of the fullness of God's blessing is to be on the right side of the door. Jesus said, take the lowest position... And I'll move you up. I'll elevate you. In your heart, you take the lowliest place in the room and let me do the elevating. There is so much emphasis in our generation on relating to the world that we've stopped examining. Are we still, in the, are we still on the right side of the door? Are we still in the kingdom? Because there's a lot of folk that are in the church, but they're not in the kingdom. They're in the church. You know what? There's lost folk, and I've seen this happen. They come in. They learn the routine. They learn the songs. 
They think because they sing the praise and they're acting like everybody else that they're born again. And they're not. And we allow that because of a lack of connectedness. There was a woman who called me. She was going to a church, probably 1,500, 2,000 people. And she calls me up and she says, uh, and she ended up coming into our church eventually, but she said, I'm really sick and I'm dealing with this and I'm, I'm having these problems. And I said, you know, like I do, well, do you go to any church? Right? If somebody calls here, we have that happen all the time. People ask for help and they'll ask for assistance. The first thing we ask, do, do you have a home church? We're not, we're not judging you, but if you have a home church, I'd like to partner with that pastor. I'd like to talk with that pastor. I'd like, to, what can we do together to help this person's situation? And so she says, yeah. I go to such and such a church, and I thought, well, goodness, this is a church with vast resources. Why are you calling this little startup church? We probably only had our doors open 18 months. Why are you doing that? I said, isn't there anybody there that you can pray with? Isn't there anybody there you can talk to? She said, I don't really know anybody there. And I said, how long have you been going there? Oh, about eight or ten years. See, we've created an environment where we're disconnected. And what does Paul say? We're supposed to be a body that's connected to, to one another. I have uh, two friends that are one-legged preachers. I'm, I'm not making this up. I have two close friends. One was my associate pastor. And um, they can, and I remember when my kids were little and one of them was walking with one of his, his prosthetic legs to get it fixed. And I said to my kids, see, after your little baby teeth fall out, then your baby arms and your baby legs. And, <laughs> and they're like freaking out. Like... And, uh, and that leg functions, right? It helps them stand. But if you can take it off to go swimming, it's not a part of your body. It can be useful to the body, but it's not an actual part of the body. The body is supposed to be so connected that we're just indivisible. The, the enemy cannot divide us. And that was actually Peter's ministry. Remember when he fell? And Jesus said, Satan desires to sift you and the Greek there was plural. Satan desires to sift you. But Peter, I've prayed for you. Singular. And when you have turned back, strengthen the brethren. Strengthen your family in Christ. Because the enemy is not going away. Anybody think the enemy just leaves you alone when you got saved? Anybody thinks that like, what, he, just, like he doesn't want to come into this church and disrupt things? Anybody, anybody think he doesn't want to mess with our worship? Anybody think he doesn't want to, you know, that he's, he's cool with, with husbands and wives getting saved and, and children just getting turned around and getting fired? Absolutely. Absolutely he's not. But what we have to recognize is that we have been given the power to bind him. We've been, and, it, and it's not just by speaking some magic formula. So many times people just throw in the name of Jesus onto something as if that works magically by throwing his... That's not how it works, guys. In the name of somebody meant to do something in the place of another individual. So if, if Daniel goes and he buys 9-gauge guitar strings or 10-gauge guitar strings once a month, every month from, the first, from, the, uh, from, from a specific music store, and one day he's sick and he calls me up and he says, Pastor, can you go down and get my order of strings? And I walk in and I say, hey, I'm here for Daniel Custer. Can you give me a set of 11-gauge guitar strings? They're going to look and say, that's not what he uses. That's not what he uses. To go in the name of Jesus means to go under his authority and go with his mission. And doorkeepers understand that. See, the gate isn't just some door that people have to go through. The gate is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to this verse in John 10, 9. Jesus said, I am the gate. 
Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. Now this is interesting because when you listen to Psalm 24, 7, listen, listen to this passage here. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this, this king of glory? He, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Now the imagery, obviously, would be of a mighty king coming through the gates, right? And everybody's in awe, this, this great and powerful king. The imagery also, if you read in Isaiah 6, where he says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Something you have to understand about kings. Kings would often be vassals under other kings. We see this at the end of Israel's history, where Nebuchadnezzar comes in, and he places a different person on the throne of Israel. He changes his name. Now, that person is still king over Israel, but he's under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. So you had to be careful in that position because if you made your train too long or if you made the trappings of your throne room too great, you would be making a statement, I am the most powerful king. In other words, you're inviting battle. You're inviting battle. I'm more powerful than Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. I am more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You'd make your train so large. Well, what is Isaiah 6? I saw the Lord and his train filled the temple. There was no room, there was no place in the temple that was not covered with the symbol of his authority and his majesty. And Psalm 24 says, who is this? This king of glory. Open up the gates so that the king of glory, hello, may come in. I'm feeling the spirit right now. Open the gate so that the king of glory may come in. God wants entrance into this place too. The Spirit of God wants entrance. And what we can do is we either create an atmosphere that better facilitates the entrance of God into this place or the entrance of the devil in this place. You ever wonder why churches go through these kind of scandals and why these churches end up preaching false doctrine and why all this crazy stuff is happening in our generation? Because we've created an atmosphere in many situations where God does not want to walk in. What fellowship hath light with darkness? If you create an atmosphere of darkness, we're telling the Lord, we really don't want you here. We might be talking about God. We might be talking about Jesus. But if we create an atmosphere where sin is coddled, if we create... See, I hear all the time, and somebody just said this to me earlier after the early service. They said, you know, why is it that we see this generation just coddling Christians and we're so afraid to step on their toes? And I said, you know what? That's a, that's a sin of the pulpit. Because when I talk to people, you know what I hear? I want to hear it. I want the truth. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to get watered down fluff. I got out of bed this morning and it was cold and I got dressed and I got in my car and I came here because I want to hear truth. Amen. Amen. Because, I, now I apologize. If you just got lost and came in here and you thought it was like a library or something, I'm sorry. I apologize to you. But I don't believe most people say, you know what, I'm going to get out of bed. I'm going to get in the shower. I'm going to get dressed. I'm going to get something to eat. I'm going to head down to church early in the morning. I'm going to spend an hour and a half there. I'm going to worship him just because I want some fluff. That don't make any sense. You know, those people, you know what those people do? They're sitting at home right now. Those are people you see every now and then. Those are people, I've, you know, I, I, could, I could pastor them for a year and like, what's your name? Because I've seen you probably ten times in the last six months. I, don't, I haven't got to know you. There's no connectivity with the body. A gate isn't just some door, guys. 
the gate is Jesus himself. And Jesus says, through me, the king of glory will come in. Through me, as we receive Jesus Christ, as we surrender to him, we become vessels through which the king of glory can move and come and touch. The day that the psalmist was speaking of was better because he had learned the secret of being a gatekeeper. He had come to understand it wasn't just better because he got his worship on. It was better because he was helping to facilitate others coming into worship as well. So let me ask you this. Has your relationship with Jesus Christ grown self-focused? Just be real. It happens to me sometimes. Where I get into my prayer time and I'm like, God, will you please bless the Bridge Church and will you please bless my wife and will you please bless my kids and will you please... And, and after a while, God's like, you, you know, there's a, there's a lost world out there. And they remind me and, and, it, and it convicts me. There's a lot of people that don't know me. See, right now there's people in this place and they're going through sickness and they're going through hurt and they're going through grief, but we're going through it together. We're doing life together and we're, we're bound together when we pray for another. There's people right now outside, there's kids being abused. There's wives being beaten up. There's people being left alone. And they're facing old age all by themselves. And they're hurting and they're lonely. And sin is beating them up. All that stuff is there because we rejected God. And God says to us, go ye. Go. It's not about how many seats are filled. It's about how many are sent. It's about how many get a heart like Jesus had. So he was willing to lay down everything. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And so the psalmist would say, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I'd rather open the door to others than have all the blessings that this world can give. And he understands that the doorkeeper at the gate of heaven has more influence than any earthly king. He gets the joy of both bringing people into the kingdom, which is a tremendous joy. Try it once, you'll get addicted. And he also has the joy of opening the kingdom to the world. To bask in the very glory of God. Who is this? This king of glory. Who is he? The Lord Almighty. He is the king of glory. So let me leave a simple principle with you before we close in prayer. And I hope genuine worship. I hope gatekeeping worship. I hope door opening worship. We cannot have the glory of God in the church without the king of glory. You can't. And we won't have the king of glory if the door is not open to him. And the door will not be opened without those who have the heart of a gatekeeper. Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of God. I have one key in my pocket. I, I carry this each week because I got locked out when, when I first got here. No, I, I got here and I, I was unloading boxes and didn't know, because the outside door, once you, it stays open. The office door, however, stays locked, and which is where I had set down my keys <laughs> and my phone. And I had to call Daniel by driving my car up to the edge of the building and hooking up the Bluetooth and saying, Daniel, I'm locked out. <laughs> yeah, that's funny to you. You know why I called him? Because he had the key. You know why God will call you? You have the key. You know why the world needs you? Because you have the key. The enemy's agenda 
is to get you content with just coming to church. And then get you content with coming less and less. And then get you content with being connected less and less. God, his agenda is absolutely the opposite. Jesus said, I pray for them that they may, man, this is radical, that they may be one even as we are one. Wow. That the same kind of unity that the Son has with the Father that we would have in the body of Christ. And Jesus prayed that prayer. And if there's anything I know, the Bible says that the fervent prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. And there was no one more righteous than Jesus Christ. So if Jesus Christ prayed for us to be unified like that, I know it's possible. If he said he's given us the key, he's given us the key. Will we open the door for the world to come in? Will we open the door for the presence of the Lord to enter into the kingdom that, that he's created, into the church that Jesus said I'm building? Will we open the door? So not just his doctrine, not just his teachings, but the king of glory himself will come into this place. Come on, let's stand together. God, I'm grateful for the songs we sing. I'm grateful for your word. But Lord, I'm not, I'm not ignorant. I'll never say anything from this pulpit that you're going to say, wow, I never thought of that. I never considered that. You don't need the preaching, Lord. You don't need the teachings. What you're looking for is us. You're looking for our worship. You're looking for us to be facilitators and gatekeepers so that your presence come, can come into the house and so that we can open the door for the world to come into the kingdom. Church, right now, in the name of Jesus, as we, as we gather together in his name and for his purpose, for his mission, as this praise team ministers just for a few moments, is there anyone here who's the Spirit is just speaking to you and you know my worship has become about me or it's become a dry place? It's not a liquid place. It's not a fertile place. It used to be, but it's not. The Lord is inviting you to a place of restoration. He's inviting you to drink deeply of the living water. No sin keeps you away. Jesus taught us that when he spoke to the woman at the well. No matter how deep our rebellion may be or even our apathy, God invites us to drink deeply. And if you need to take a drink, if you need to say to God, Lord, I need to be refreshed. Lord, I need to be transformational. Lord, my worship has become more about me and my kingdom than about you and yours. I want to open this altar up for anyone who would become the vessel in the hands of God and who would be willing to take that challenge. Lord, make me, make me a gatekeeper and use me to open the door to others, whether it's witnessing to somebody this week whether it's sharing my testimony, whether it's inviting them to church, Lord, connect me with somebody. Transform my heart so that I can become the vessel for your purposes in this generation. If that's you, I want to pray with you today. We worship you, Lord. We worship you, Lord.